1: Coming up on today's show, the one, the only Rick Mercer will join us. We'll talk about his new book, Talking to Canadians. Some insight as to what NASA is up to with their mission to send a spacecraft to crash into an asteroid. And supplements being touted as the best way to fight COVID-19. Don't believe it. That's according to our guest, Dr. Timothy Caulfield.
2: And our capital building in Canada is actually a downscale, cap- downscale model of your Capitol building, except it's, it's made out of ice. It's an igloo, you see. And we're, we're worried about global warming and the fact that it might uh, melt, so we're putting a dome over it. But in order to pay for it, we have to attract tourists. Would you be interested in visiting the uh, Canada's national
1: igloo? Absolutely. Yeah? Sure. Congratulations, Canada, on preserving your igloo. Congratulations, Canada, on preserving your national igloo. Yes, indeed. Well, congratulations, Canada, on becoming part of North America. Thank you very much. That is Rick Mercer talking to Americans, one of his iconic, it's not a bit, it's not a sketch, uh, it's one of his iconic roles, it's not a role either, I don't know how you define it, but a segment, we'll call it that, uh, along with this hour has 22 minutes, the Rick Mercer report made in Canada, he's been making us laugh in this country for a very, very long time, haven't heard from him in a few years, pandemics will do that, but he's been busy, Spent the lockdown writing his memoir, which is titled Talking to Canadians, and I am delighted he's chosen to join us this morning. Rick, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Oh, it's great. Thank you for having me. Um, Now, the press release that accompanies your new book calls you the most private of public figures. And I was thinking, (laughs) really? I mean, I've I've known of Rick Mercer for years. I've been a fan for years. But then I thought, I don't know a lot about the guy off TV, so I guess it's true. Now, that takes a lot of work in this day and age, so now to sit down and write a book about you, was it tough? It was a bit of
2: a learning curve. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm a pathologically private person or anything like that, but a lot of comedians or people in comedy, they talk about their own life, they get material from their own life. I was just never one of those people. I was always talking about politics or current events or small towns or whatever I was doing. I was just never talking about what was going on in my life. So it was definitely a learning curve. And I'm also not a reflective guy. I don't sit around and think about stuff in the past, and so that was a bit of a difference to sit around and think about growing up and high school and trouble that you might have got in and bad decisions you've made in your life and thankfully some good decisions.
1: It it was a bit of a difference. It It was a bit different. When you talk about making decisions, the one takeaway that I got from the book is you sort of take a look back and say, how did Rick Mercer end up where Rick Mercer ended up? My impression is you ended up there by saying, Yeah, that sounds really cool. Let's do it. Without giving any thought to all the reasons that maybe you shouldn't say, yeah, let's do it. Going back to when you were a very small child looking for a Christmas tree, right up into giant specials with the forces. It's just always, yeah, that sounds great. Let's do it. I think there's a point
2: especially in your early in your life when you could, you you do things because you don't know any better. And I certainly didn't know any better and I did a bunch of things that had I known then what I know now I probably wouldn't have done it. That was the first one man show. Uh I never would have said, "Yeah, sure, I can write and perform a one-man show in five weeks in, in Ottawa, I'll, I'll go do that because it's, that's, that's really not enough time, but I didn't know any better. Even when I was a kid, we, you, my, uh, my buddies and I, we took over the high school newspaper. We stacked the meeting and uh, we became the editors of the high school newspaper. We were celebrating and the principal called us in and said, you stack the meeting. And we said, yeah, of course, that's what meetings are for. That's how you know, weirdos get on school boards, and people become the liberal candidate or whatever. You stack the meeting. And he said, no, you're done. You can't have anything to do with the newspaper. So we just said, ah, let's start our own magazine. And then we did. And we didn't know any
1: better, and we did. And it was just what the way we were thinking, I guess. But you make the decision. It's like, yeah, we can do that. Let's do it. And then you realize that, okay, maybe we can't do it, or it's not going to be easy to do. But you have this... Um, this drive, I mean, to perform, to be that person that gets you through all of this stuff. Like, you're singularly passionate about being a performer, right?
2: Yeah, I guess so. I, I worry, or I don't worry, but I wonder what would have happened to me if I didn't discover the career that I did. Uh, I was a really bad student. I i wasn't doing well at school, and that's a bad place to be because you know, you can just, stumble by, but eventually, as time goes on, you start falling further and further behind. You're treading water, and you're going to slip under because you just don't have the basics, and that's kind of where I was in high school. Things were just starting to go south really fast, and I joined the drama club. We didn't have a gay-straight alliance, so I thought I'd try the (laughs) drama club, and we did a play. I, I, I decided to be the... The stage manager. I was terrible at that. I didn't like the play. All I did was sit around and talk to the director all day, and uh, I liked her very much. and And then when the play was over, I said, "Well, that's it. I'm quitting." <clears throat> and the, the the drama teacher said, "Well, if you quit, that that could be one of the biggest mistakes of your life." And I thought, "Well, that's a little over the top." I said, "Why is it a mistake?" And she said, "Well, the next play is really important because we're entering it into the provincial drama festival." And I said, what's the play? And she said, I don't know. You haven't written it yet. (laughs) And no one had ever suggested to me that I could write a play or I should write a play. And that changed everything that day. I I stuck around with a bunch of other people. We started writing shows. And uh, everything changed. And then suddenly I became a great student. Suddenly I was the hardest working guy in the room.
1: Right, yeah, in some areas, because you still say, and, and it's hilarious when you talk about your academic career and some of the things you went through in the book, um, you you had a real knack for hitting 50%, and you thought you were, hey, I'm doing all right, I'm getting by. Yeah, yeah, and that's what happens, and then, and then you slip
2: under, and then, <laughs> you don't really quite make it through grade 11 math, and then the next thing you know, you're in grade 12, and you're taking grade 11 math and grade 12 math in the same year, and sometimes you go to school on a Wednesday, and you got... An hour of grade twelve math followed by
1: an hour of grade ten math. I mean, that's that's, that's not a recipe for success. How the, help me make sense of this? Because I, I, you know, anyone who reads the book is not going to come away saying this is a studious guy. This was not a guy who was following along. But you've become known as probably our sharpest, most articulate satirist of things political and things national. So, was there always a natural interest in in politics? I mean that takes some work some background some homework so how do those two work together
2: No that was always my sport so okay. you can imagine if baseball's your sport or hockey's your sport how many uh, how many useless figures <laughs> and stats you, you pick up in a lifetime when it's your your sport and your passion and it always was uh, that's something i always paid attention to uh, of course that didn't translate to marks of course but, but yeah, i had a i had a godfather who i guess you would say, would pass for as local color. He was a very eccentric guy, a friend of my dad's, who uh, who ran for the conservatives and uh, got elected and then crossed the floor the night he got elected when it was announced that it was actually a tie <laughs> in the night? legislature. <laughs> <laughs> they almost killed him. And then the whole election was was thrown out a couple of months later. He ran again as, as a liberal, uh, or, or yeah, as a liberal having crossed the floor, and he got about 14 votes. After that, he ran for the leadership of the Conservative Party and the Liberal Party, provincially, not much luck. But he, had a, he had, ran a corner store called Rip Ripoff, and he had a <laughs> takeout called Shay's Hamburger Hell. And this was where I got my first after-school jobs when I was a kid. Yeah and uh he would have a a real gang of municipal politicians and cops and ex provincial politicians and prostitutes and a real eclectic collection of individuals <laughs> hanging out at that takeout all talking politics and I thought it was fascinating and, yeah. and they would they would let me join in, even though I was twelve thirteen years of age it was uh, It was a, a, a
1: great education. I want to ask you about being, I mean, like we're just getting texts from people who've run into you, one ran into you in San Francisco and says, you're the greatest guy, a huge fan. So many people, um, you know, you've, you've achieved that level of Canadian superstardom. And I've always wonder about that because you're fiercely Canadian and I'm sure you've had offers to, you know. Do something beyond Canada, and I, I know there's some people who think that's the next step. You've got to do that, but there's some who really lean into that Canadian stratosphere of being the best in Canada. Um, was that a conscious choice? I mean, how do you no. just define I was that? Just,
2: I, don't, I don't begrudge anyone, obviously, who goes to the States if they're in show business because it's the largest English sure. language market in the world. Uh, makes perfect sense, but I was just really lucky. I got... We created 22 Minutes, and it was a hit show, so suddenly I had a real job. And I think a lot of people who head south, it's because they're looking for work. I had a real job, and then I had a sitcom that I was doing when I wasn't doing that show. And that's when the opportunity to go to the States came along. And it's funny, I only brought this up after I wrote the book, and someone said, why didn't you put that in your book? And I just thought, well, I never really thought of it. But at the time, I was off of this game show called The Weakest Link, Mm -hmm. and it was after talking to Americans and they wanted someone to do this show The Weakest Link and they wanted someone who wasn't American but someone who sounded American and who could make fun of the education system and so originally they had a Brit, a woman, and uh, they were getting rid of her and wanted someone else and so this opportunity came along to go south and the money was stupid. It was really stupid but uh, I just thought, well Or I could just write what I wanted, write and perform my own stuff on this show that's about politics in Canada. It just didn't seem like it was something I was interested in doing. And then I never really pursued it past that, because I've always
1: been fortunate to have work. If I needed the work, I guess I'd go looking for work. Yeah, makes sense. Makes perfect sense. Um, When I take a look at um, being in that position, though, there is something really... I don't know what the right word is, but being that level of Canadian. There's something about being a Canadian and being that kind of a Canadian star where Canadians just absolutely, they own you and, and they're proud of you and we celebrate people that reach your level of success. Is there some attraction to that? Uh, you know, that's really nice. And if people, people feel that way, that's great. Although I don't think
2: anyone really goes into show business with that as an end goal, right, and if yeah. they do, then that's, I think, uh, that's, a, that's, that's a probably a pretty <laughs> unhappy person. And uh, it's a long shot, let's face it. Uh, I, I, I've been really lucky. People are always very nice to me. That's what I would say, the definition of celebrity is in Canada. Like I would say to my friends, like, well, I think the people at Air Canada are really nice. They just treat you so nice. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, that, 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 that doesn't happen to everyone there, Rick. That's, that's more you. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, yeah. oh, so I guess that's the big benefit, but people are generally pretty nice, and also because it's Canada, if they don't, if they don't like you, they just don't say anything. So that's sure. good. I don't have people yelling at me. I went to a, a Rolling Stones concert once. A friend of mine called me and said, I've got tickets to the Rolling Stones. You want to go? I said, yeah, sure. And uh, she worked in politics. And uh, she also gave tickets to uh, a former premier, Canadian premier. And so uh, this guy had been out of politics for years and years. I didn't know him that well at all, really. But he was sitting next to me at the Rolling Stones. So it seemed like we were together and... At one point, we decided to go get some beers, and we were walking along, and people were yelling out to me, hey, Rick, nice to see you, man, nice to see you. Then they saw him, and they were like, hey, ass, I pay taxes, you know, and they gave him the finger. and I'm like, wow, that's the difference between being in comedy and being in politics, and this guy was actually fairly well-liked, and like I say, he'd been out of the business for
1: a decade, and people are still screaming at him, so... Uh, I I got off easy. Yeah, no kidding. Um, As funny as the book is, and it is, it is hilarious. It's also at times very, very poignant, especially when you're talking about the work you did with Canadian troops overseas. Those were big moments in your career and your life, weren't they?
2: Yeah, and I stumbled upon it. The first time I did it was in Bosnia. That's that's a long time ago now. And I was just looking for something to do for Christmas, and we just launched this website. We did the Doris Day petition, and it caused all sorts of noise, and everyone was talking about this newfangled thing, the Internet, and what are you going to do with it? And I just started thinking of maybe we could uh, do something with peacekeepers, but I didn't even know how many we had, and I I, I actually got on the phone. You didn't even God know we had Canadian. any at that time, Yeah, did you? like I, I I didn't know. I called the guy from the Canadian Forces whose job it is to answer questions about this, and I was like, so uh, how many peacekeepers do we have? And he was like 1,400, I think at the time, overseas. So I was like, wow, are they in harm's way? And he was like, well, if you consider a uh, big shot at on the regular, and uh, having to deal with landmines, yes, I would say they're in harm's way. And I was so embarrassed, because there I was, Captain Canada, Mr. Current Affairs, following along, everything was going on. I totally forgot we had peacekeepers in Bosnia, and they were totally off the radar. And by the time the conversation was over, not only were we going to do this website, but I said, well we'd like to come to bosnia how fast can i get there how do you get there and three or four days later we were in bosnia we we shot this piece leading up to christmas and we launched this website so canadians could send messages to the peacekeepers who were serving overseas and it was just tremendously satisfying personally satisfying to me and i was embarrassed again because they were so grateful and thankful that we had made this trip and I was like, well, this is the world is upside down. We're the ones who should be grateful for you. You're the ones who, who are here because we had sent you here, and your political masters have decided you're going to be here, and you're putting yourself in harm's way every day. I, I'm doing a comedy show. I'm going to leave in three days. But they kept saying, oh, we're you know, so thankful that you came because they weren't getting the attention. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it just changed a lot of things for me. And, I, and I, the response was overwhelming kind of showed me what a a comedy piece or a segment could actually achieve, because there was literally hundreds of thousands of messages sent that Christmas. And uh, it was just a relationship that I continued. I went to Afghanistan, did a TV special called Christmas in Kabul, but uh, two or three times I went to Afghanistan, and we didn't bring cameras at all. We just went and did shows, because... Uh, You could spend more time that way not working and just doing the shows. And so it was just uh, very personally gratifying and it was something that I always did. I think I probably visited almost every military
1: base in Canada over the years. Uh, Is great stories in the book. When you read the book, you'll you'll be touched by those. Um, We're running out of time here, so last one. I know when you write, you talk about in the book your your process is basically just write, 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 and then whittle down. So I imagine there's at least two or three books in that office with you um, that you can maybe maybe the memoir leftovers or something like that. Will there be more? I don't know. I I did start
2: chronologically, and I just kept going until my editor said, okay, you've got a book now. (laughs) And it doesn't really cover the 15 years of the Mercer Report. So someday,
1: maybe, but right now there's no file on my computer that says Part 2. How is it picking the stories, though? Because, I mean, the ones you picked are hilarious, cutting down the Christmas tree and the rest, but are there some real gems that you had to say, Oh, I'd like to see that in there? Uh, yeah, I think the
2: the talking to Americans stuff, how talking to Americans came about, and some of those adventures that we found ourselves on, I, I, I've told those stories before, and uh, I, I knew for sure that I wanted those in there. The Christmas tree story, my my dalliance with being a juvenile delinquent, and my brother. I didn't think I would tell that, and then when I did, my brother called me. He's like, "You did not put that in the book. You cannot." He said, "You." We promise we take that to our graves. <laughs> it's like, come on, you were nine, I was seven. I think we can confess at this point, the statute of limitations on stealing
1: a Christmas tree is, um, uh, is passed. Yeah, I imagine, but still, it's going to sting. I mean, you're still living in that town. There's still, there's still connections. Hey, last one before I let you go, is a guy who spent 25 years in the boring kind of TV news, not the fun kind that you did. I know what streeters are like, and I know what talking to strangers are like. Um, and not you know not even trying to make fun of them did you ever were you ever scared were you ever nervous and thinking someone's going to figure out what i'm doing here i'm going to get socked in the mouth oh yeah that's that was every
2: single day of talking (laughs) to americans i thought this will get me punched in the face and every time we upped the ante it made it more and more outrageous. so every time i was convinced okay today i
1: crossed the rubicon today i get punched in the head but it just never came it never came and we got some awesome tv out of it rick thank you so much for your time today can't thank you enough Thank you so much. You bet. That's Rick Mercer, author of Talking with Canadians, or Talking to Canadians, I'm sorry, a memoir. Uh, It is a very funny book, and you would expect nothing less uh, from Rick, um, who, you know, this hour has 22 minutes, and talking to Americans, uh, it's, it's a good read.
3: This episode is brought to you by Seed. Probiotics are most effective when they make it to your colon alive. That's why C developed a patented 2-in-1 capsule that safeguards viability of its DSO-1 daily symbiotic through digestion to deliver the maximum dose to your colon. No refrigeration necessary. Visit C.com slash Spotify and use code SPOTIFY25 to get 25% off your first month.
1: talked about this, this story just fascinates me. So I want to get some expert analysis on what exactly is going on. We talked about it briefly last week, but if you haven't heard, NASA launched a spacecraft with the sole purpose of smashing it into an asteroid, just crashing right into it and trying to alter its course. I guess it's sort of a a dry run for maybe that's something. You've seen Armageddon. You know what I'm talking about. Um, Let's go to Paul Wiegert now, who is an asteroid expert at Western University Institute. Hi, Paul. How are you? Good, good. How are you? Good, good. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay, first of all, uh, do I have that right? Basically, I mean, we've all seen Armageddon, where essentially there was an asteroid that was going to destroy the Earth, so they sent a crew up to blow it up and alter its course so it didn't hit Earth. Is Is that really what's happening here, just sort of a trial run of doing that in real life?
0: not quite uh, the they are sending a spacecraft to crash into this asteroid but it, it's not intended to blow it up it's intended to give it a little bit of a push a bit of a nudge sideways so we can see if we can deflect them that way yeah i mean it's not going to send it
1: hurtling off into space other people are saying well what if it goes fl- now it's in our tr-. like they're talking about
0: bumping it just a little bit right yes yes it's a very small impact there's no way that it's going to get a big a big kick out of this. Okay, so the actual device
1: that they're using, the spacecraft that they're sending up there, or sending up there, uh, what do we know about it?
0: Well, the spacecraft itself weighs about three hundred kilograms, and it is going to hit the asteroid at very high speed—tens uh, of kilometers, tens of thousands of kilometers per hour. So, it's—it's uh, three hundred kilograms sounds like a lot, but it's much, much smaller than the the asteroid that is crashing into. Um, and
1: so, when we talk about giving it a nudge like what what's the optimal outcome of this
0: mission? Well, the optimal outcome i mean we're really we're trying to understand what happens when you try to to nudge an asteroid, so when we hit it, I mean an asteroid could be a solid rock, but because we haven't visited any directly, we're not quite sure if underneath the surface it's it's just completely solid rock or if it's more like a sandbag so if you're if you're shooting a bullet at something. Um, what's going to happen yeah. when it impacts is going to depend a lot on what exactly is is going on underneath the surface. So that's what the goal of this mission is, is to find out really what happens when you try this. Um, and w- how long does it take? It's going to take months for this to actually get there, right? Yeah. So it, it launched last week and it will get there and impact probably in September or October of next year. So about 12 months. Uh,
1: maybe you can help me with this, because these kinds of stories, the reason I love them so much is I can't wrap my head around how people calculate things like this and how this is possible. What kind of work would have to go into sending a spacecraft from Earth up to an asteroid that is traveling at ridiculous speeds and making them collide? I mean, is it is it a sure thing? Like, how hard is that to do?
0: Yeah, you're right. It, it's not easy. There's certainly a lot of engineering and math which goes into it, but the beautiful thing about asteroids and even the planets going around the sun. So the asteroids go around the sun the same way as the planets do and, and both follow very, very precise trajectories. So yeah. they repeat the same path over and over again every year. So the Earth goes around the sun once a year and, and we follow the same the same path. And so the asteroids do the same. So once you've... Kind of figured out where that asteroid is going. You can actually predict where it will be with high precision because it, it is, is sort of very consistent that way. So you've got to get your your spaceship to the right place at the right time, of course, to to have this impact happen. But but um, uh, the asteroids are, are well behaved in that sense, so that you can you can sort Let's of know where your target will be. Um, and and I guess ultimately the end goal is
1: this could be something that we need to do for real in order to order catastrophe. Is that the main reason here, to just see if this is even possible, if we ever find ourselves in that situation?
0: Yeah, exactly. So it's a question, really, of being prepared. We don't know of any asteroids that are, you know, on an intercept course with Earth. So, you know, as of this moment, you know, this is not, you know, being prepared for any specific scenario. But when, or maybe I should say if an asteroid is ever discovered that is headed our way, we want to know, you know, which strategies work and which ones don't, you know, before it it kind of comes to that point.
1: Yeah, amazing stuff. Paul, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. You're very welcome. That is Paul Wiegert, who is uh, asteroid expert, which is a cool title, at Western University's Institute for Earth and Space Exploration. Dr. Timothy Caulfield, who we've had on the show before, he's on a mission to um, debunk and to deal with some of the (laughs) endless stream of misinformation uh, that's out there right now. Dr. Caulfield, thanks for your time. Always a pleasure to chat with you. Uh, thanks for having me on. So today we're going to talk supplements, and uh, and that's sort of it's always bounced around. Um, but what uh, what are you uh, taking attention to right now? What I mean, basically, you can cure COVID. Some people saying it's better than vaccines. I mean, supplements, supplements, supplements. What's your take?
3: You're exactly right. We're we're seeing this real spike in interest in supplements over over the pandemic. No surprise, right, they're being marketed as a way to boost your immune system, which you really can't do, by the way. You really can't boost your immune system. No one would you want to, right? That's anaphylaxis. That's an autoimmune disease. You want a healthy immune system. Uh, but they're also being uh, presented to the public as something that, you know, you can use to, treat, uh, to tr- treat COVID. So we've had people like Joe Rogan and Gwyneth Paltrow in the context of long COVID, And Aaron Rodgers talking about uh, his his treatment of of uh, COVID, you know, pushing pushing uh, supplements as you know really a a treatment, and there's no evidence no evidence to support that at all. And the other thing that's happening, one of the reasons I'm really interested in in it is it's getting tied up with the anti-vax rhetoric. So it's like you're pro-supplements
1: but you're anti-vax, and that's really problematic. Okay, well, now when we're talking about supplements, is there, I mean, there can be some benefits to some supplements, right? Or are we saying that supplements are all nonsense and, and I mean, is there any benefit to some of these supplements?
3: Yeah, I, I think that's a really important caveat, so thank you for bringing that up. You know, I, if, if your science-informed healthcare provider uh, says you have a deficiency, um, yes, a supplement uh, it can absolutely be needed and, and should be taken, right? Follow the recommendations from your, from your physician. Uh, if you're pregnant, right, or want to get pregnant, there are certain supplements that you should be, take. But the multi-billion dollar supplement industry, that's what I'm talking about, most of that stuff, you know, most of that stuff, very little evidence to support mm-hmm. the use Even things like multivitamins, very lightly regulated. So some of these supplements are contaminated, uh, they show um, they have even been found to be harmful. Um, and uh, in addition to that, uh, they often very, very often don't have a solid uh, science base behind them. So, yeah, the, the evidence really isn't there for a, a, a lot of the supplements that are pushed on us for, for health purposes.
1: And you're saying there is a risk. I mean, my, my take always is, is you know, you take a whole bunch of vitamins. The worst you're going to do is just pee them out. It's a waste of money. But you're saying there's a risk to some of these supplements that are being pushed.
3: Yeah, for sure. Yeah,
1: expensive tea, right? That's, yeah. Yeah. Hashtag
3: <laughs> expensive. Tea. Um, yes. You know, there have been studies that have shown, for example, that one of the leading causes of liver failure at. Um, in emergency rooms, they are supplements, you know, be, and and sometimes these supplements are, even research that's been done here in Canada have found that supplements are often contaminated with things that aren't on the label. There have even been situations where supplements are contaminated with pharmaceuticals, which is kind of ironic because often people are taking them because they want to avoid Avoid uh, pharmaceuticals, and and that's another really interesting part of this story. The supplements are often pushed as being a natural way of dealing with things, whereas pharmaceuticals are not natural. Um, and uh, there's two two things that are ironic about it. What's so natural about you know taking a, a, a particular nutrient putting it in a pill and taking it? That's not very natural. And in addition to that, many of these supplement companies are owned by the pharmaceutical industry, so you're mm-hmm. not like keeping money from them. <laughs>
1: But I mean, that's the thing, right? When you've got a a situation like this, there are always going to be people that will capitalize and realize they can make a few bucks and, uh, and they know there's a captive audience right now. People are scared. Other people are just dead set against, you know, like you say, big pharma. So they're looking for alternatives. And there are people there that will happily sell them stuff that may not do anything and make a lot of money with it.
3: You're right. And, um, so we should really be angry. You know, we shouldn't be frustrated with people taking these supplements because I totally get it, right? People are looking for answers. Yeah. Uh, we should be angry with those individuals that are, are pushing the misinformation and, 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 and the, the misleading marketing. And I think it's also really important to highlight that there is genuine research going on out there around things like vitamin D, right? right. Vitamin D in the context of the immune system, you know, what are they? Now, the, the emerging, when the research has been done in that area, when the research is good, you know, clinical trials, the, the results have been very underwhelming, but there is real research going on uh, and the potential for benefit in the future, but we're not talking about a magical cure. We'd be talking about some kind of
1: supplemental help But don't believe the bottom line is don't believe the hype. Right, exactly. Okay. Thanks very much, Doc. Appreciate it. Uh, My pleasure. That's Dr. Timothy Caulfield. Um, Dr. Caulfield uh, is a University of Alberta professor in health law and policy and Canada research chair in health law and policy. He's also the guy who created A User's Guide to Cheating Death, I believe it was called, which was a huge Netflix series where he went through, long before COVID, uh, he went through a bunch of the. nonsense. And he, he, I think a lot of it was focused on Gwyneth Paltrow and her goop website. And he just walked through some of the, some of the things that are out there that take off and sort of become causes or people get really wrapped up in them. And he just sort of walks through the science around it. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.